Hey everyone, and welcome to How Did I Get Here, a podcast where we talk to lawyers to learn about their career and the steps they took to get there. I'm Shabir Chaudhary, and on today's episode is Adil Bashir, an assistant federal public defender in Florida. Previously, Adil was an associate Mayor Brown and with the Federal Public Defender's Office in North Carolina. Adil is also president of the American Muslim Bar Association. Here's our conversation. Hey, Adil. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, good to see you. Oh, thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Great, great. Um, so, you know, you're with the Federal Defender in Florida, and you've been there for about a decade. And tell me a little bit about what it is you do. Well, absolutely. Um, and again, thanks for having me on. So I really love talking about the Federal Defender's Office, uh, and especially for people who are probably listening, because if you're anything like myself, you've probably never heard of the Federal Public Defender's Office before <laughs> you step foot in there. And I, I think I was um, one of those as well. So just broadly speaking, I think most people are uh, relatively familiar with public defense um, you know, you watch TV, CSI, any of the procedurals, um, you have the right to an attorney. If you can't afford one, one will be provided to you. Um, we are that on the federal level. And, you know, most people, I think colloquially speaking, understand the criminal justice system and, you know, robberies, burglaries, murder, crime, a lot of things happen, but really don't differentiate between, well, what things happen on the state level and what things happen on the federal level. And, Truth be told, most of the crimes in this country are prosecuted on the state level. It's somewhat of a limited capacity, but there's like an outstretched, um, you know, visibility on things that happen on the Department of Justice, uh, things that happen, you know, uh, much more visibly on the federal level. So when we're looking at federal public defense, people that are charged by what we're looking in the districts by assistant U.S. attorneys, um, nine times out of ten those uh, individuals will not be able to afford defense and their appointed office. So there's federal defenders offices throughout the country in every district. So pretty much everywhere where you'll have a AUSA or U.S. attorney's um, office that's prosecuting cases, you'll have us on the other side of the equation um, uh, representing defense in addition to the private defense bar. And I, in particular, work um, mostly in our appellate side, which is a uh, niche that I truly love. And appeals is great because you're now dealing with the case after presumably you've lost on the defense side and you're dealing with very esoteric issues on the court of appeals level. I like to always describe it to people as, you know, if you're that person in law school that liked writing papers, if you're that person that enjoyed con law or crim pro, Mm -hmm. and, you know, you really didn't want to admit to your other colleagues or people in law school, what everyone was saying, man, this really sucks. And you're like, this is kind of fun. I don't know what, uh, you know, oh yeah, yeah, nah, yeah, this is so tough. Um, but you were secretly enjoying it. Uh, you'll really like the appellate side of things because it's super cerebral. You really get down to kind of nitty gritty issues. Um, you're, you're dealing a lot with standards of review. You're looking at, you know, that, that Westlaw or Lexus bag that you're getting in law school, you know, hang on to that password because you'll spend all day <laughs> doing research. But, but don't hang on to that password because I'm uh, pretty sure it's, it's not a <laughs> to, be, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I could not tell you for the life of me what my Westlaw password is. It's like saved on there for like 10 years at this point. But 
yeah, um, if you took Westlaw away, it's like Superman and Kryptonite. I, I don't know right. what I would be able to do, but um, but yeah, I, I mean, you know, just to focus back on it, um, you know, we're representing indigent criminal defendants. So now you're you're really thinking who, what's the client base look like? So you have people that are um, convicted of uh, federal drug offenses, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of a hot topic in the news these days too, with the criminal justice reform and getting back into, um, you know, disparate sentencing on racial lines. You're dealing with fraud cases. You're dealing with, um, you know, pretty high level, um, you know, sex trafficking offenses as well. You know, things that um, are, are quite challenging. Um, a lot of sentencing issues, a lot of constitutional issues, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment issues, um, you know, but the way um, our courts have kind of evolved over the last few years, we're seeing an uptick in Second Amendment issues. So, you know, there's lots of areas to uh, really dive into when it comes to the, the legal aspect of it, but you're dealing with people. You know, it's, you know, the, the thing I would, you know, especially out to the audience, it's not a job that you can divorce yourself from the day-to-day impact of individuals because um, whenever, you know, we're talking to students or I'm talking to friends and, you know, they got to get a sample of well, what kind of, um, what's the di- real difference between state court and federal court? And I always, you know, give the example, well, you know, I can give you an example right now. I have a client and he was sentenced to 2,040 months. And, you know, if you just do the quick math, we do everything in, in, in months. It's like, it's like, if you lift weights, you can do everything and calculate everything in 45 pounds. Cause right. of the weights. <laughs> you can do everything in months when you become a prosecutor or a defender. Um, and they're just looking at you like, Oh my God, this guy must've like, you know, how many different people did he murder or whatnot? And I won't go into the details, but I can promise you it's not the worst case I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And it's probably not the worst case that you'll ever see, but you know, you're routinely looking at close to life sentences, hundreds of months. And even for, you know, your typical drug cases, a lot of times those things have changed, you know, people are getting 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you're talking entire lives right. of individuals so it's just, you know, and you are the only person and typically on the appellate side, you're the last line of defense. I mean, they're counting on you mm-hmm. to do something about it. Um, and, you know, I, I always give clients the analogy. Um, and this is the part where I'll have to caveat for the audience. I use a lot of sports analogies, but, um, <laughs> you know, if you're, you're watching football on a Sunday, you know how we all get irritated with instant replay, but the call on the field stands, mm-hmm. that's the best way to think about our appellate system you know, it's deferential. It doesn't, you know, what's right and wrong is typically not the best way to look at it. It's what was the call in the field. Um, and you're going to defer when it's a close call. And, you know, most, most times, you know, there's going to be an affirmance and you're not doing anyone any favors telling them anything other than the truth. So, uh, you know, there's a real human impact to it as much as, right. you know, I love the, the, the legal impact. Yeah. So, to, you know, two interesting things there. It sounds like what you're saying on an appeal and affirm affirming of the lower court is more likely than not. So you have kind of an uphill battle um, because of the deferential standard, but how do you handle kind of the, the mental health part of the job when you have this, you have an uphill battle with trying to convince the appellate court to overturn a lower court decision, plus dealing with, like you're saying, 
real life circumstances, right? This, this, you are the last line of defense for preventing somebody from spending their life in prison. Yeah, no, it's no two two great points, and I'll start with this too. And I and I don't want any of my uh, my trial attorneys out there to get mad at me, but I'm going to have to draw a line in the sand um, uh, for people that primarily do appeals. So when you get an appellate record, the first thing that you're looking to do is go back and look and see, okay, what happened at the trial court? And you're essentially looking for mistakes and you're looking mistakes um, from the judge, but you know, people aren't perfect. You know, I've done stuff on um, you know, plenty of stuff on the trial side. It's, it's attorneys themselves make, mistakes. And sometimes the mistake is just not presenting the issue as cleanly as possible or as teed up as possible. And there's sometimes things trial attorneys do that are just strategic. So when you're, you know, you ask the question about like, how do you convince the appellate court? The first thing you have to do is how do you even convince the client to explain to them that, you know, you may think this is an appeal and a redo, like that's not the the task at all that we're engaging in. Like we're actually going back and seeing, okay, was there some type of error that is really going to set you back to where you're going? And for everyone listening in law school, a really important class, in addition to evidence, p- take remedies <laughs> because you always want to ask the question too, where are we going? You know, it's, there's really no such thing as a j- get out of jail free card. Um, Anyone who's telling you that you're going to just get convictions overturned and all of a sudden there's no such thing as double jeopardy or there is or double jeopardy attached, like it gets really, really complicated. So really, you know, you kind of have to be a glutton for punishment, I would say. Um, you have to be the type of person that, you know, and I can speak for myself and I think a lot of my colleagues that I work with, um, that kind of thrive on being able to find a needle in a haystack and be able to present issues. Um, it is an, it is a task of telling the appellate court that this is a case worthy of something didn't happen, right. It should be sent back. But that remedies question, you're always got to be mindful of, you know, if you have kids, you know, what are your kids asking? Like if they ask too much, you're not going to get it. you know, mm-hmm. what are you actually asking the court for them to do? And, you really got to be able to explain that to the client because, you know, I, I don't think I've ever had a conversation, first conversation with somebody, which isn't anything other than dis, you know, disambiguing, ambiguating, if that's a word, <laughs> of, you know, hey, this isn't a redo. You know, you, everything that happened at trial, I know you're probably really upset about certain facts, you're not happy with your sentence. You know, the appellate court's not here to just change what happened or even take in new evidence for that matter. We have to, you know, do things in a way where we're kind of stuck where we are and we got to see where we can go forward and think strategically. But, um, you know, one thing that really helps, um, you know, going back to kind of the human aspect of it is I find, you know, you're dealing with individuals that have gone through system over and over in many sense, you know, rarely do you're, you're getting somebody who's a first time offender, treating them, you know, and with somewhat of dignity and un- having them understand that you're going to do everything that you can. It doesn't matter. You can't guarantee results, but you can guarantee effort really goes a long way because that is, you know, the, the number of times someone has said, you know, you know, this is the first time someone's actually taking a look or listening to me or, mm-hmm. you know, 
taking the time to explain to me why I can't, um, you know, raise any issues. I always make the same joke, which hopefully clients are not listening to. It's not even a joke. You know, my last name, I think for the most part translates to like the bearer of good news. And I always tell people it's a total misnomer to call for clients. I'm like, all I'm going to do is tell you bad news. Um, and it's, it doesn't bring me any pleasure to do that, but if I'm not honest with you, no one else will. Um, and that, that typically tells um, tends to help, uh, you know, the conversation, you know, quite a bit. And then, you know, the, it goes a long way to also explaining the, you know, where the judges are coming from and what their position is. So someone understands, Hey, you know, they have a job too. You know, you know, you don't want to forget that. And they're bound by precedent and they're, you know, they, you know, an appellate court has a Supreme court over them. They have, they can't just go rogue and do whatever they feel like doing as, much as they want to. So, you, you know, you got to put everybody into their different place and explain all those different aspects to it. Right. No. So, um, you know, I've only had institutional clients, so I've never had to really deal with kind of the, the examples you're giving yeah. of people having to explain to individuals, right. How court proceedings work and things like that. How do you, you know, as you've done this for over a decade, you know, what tips do you have for, people who are listening who have to deal with that have to, you know, kind of explain to clients this process. Yeah. It's so, you know, you know, I used to work at a a firm um, uh, in DC um, after law school and, you know, you have firm clients. And I think when you're in a law firm, you know, you're so hyper client focused and making sure the client is happy that you're doing everything that you can possible. It's not any different and our, our, our line of it. So one of the biggest tips that I could give is don't, you know, whatever line of profession that you're at, um, you know, just as an ethics matter, but even just as a North star, you know, when in doubt, you got to always check your own ego and put yourself back. This happens to every appellate attorney, I think on the planet, um, or at least in the country, you get so involved in the issue. Like I've had clients sometimes that are like, eh, you know, it's not, you know, win or lose, not a big deal. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, oh, this is like an awesome fourth amendment issue. Like, <laughs> don't you dare drop this appeal. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but you gotta, you gotta remember, okay, you're actually trying to help someone. You're trying to make some statement about the law. You, you know, you're trying to do things the right way. Um, and, you want to do it with the same type of rigor. You know, I think I had an advantage or at least a perspective of where, you know, you're working with partners, you're working with individuals that are really going to bat for like multinational corporations, people with like deep pockets. And, you know, I think I speak for a lot of defenders when we say, you know, we want to bring that exact same rigor to, um, you know, our clients. So, you know, that stereotype of, Oh, it's like a public defender. He doesn't really care or whatnot. I mean, it brings me like a, like a joy when someone is like, you know, someone realizes like, oh man, this is like, you know, like, I feel like I'm getting a lot out of this, even though I'm not paying for it. And it's like, that's exactly right. Like that's, that's the whole point of it. Um, And you want, you don't want our system or our, our world to be just because you can afford, you know, a high-priced law firm or something, that you're you're going to get some outstretched um, level of representation. Obviously, there's you know resource differences and things like that. But um, you know, again, I bring it back to that like effort aspect. Um, you know, but think about the client and think about the fact that you're doing something 
for someone else that a lot of people probably look at you sideways, but, um, you know, at least one person appreciates it. Right. I will say like another kind of piece of advice, if you're in at any stage of your career right now, a lot, a lot of what you're probably thinking about is what type of law do I want to do? You know, you're talking about, you know, you're working with institutional clients, um, you know, where's your kind of passion at, you know, there's those people that, you know, they thrive on being in a courtroom. They really, you know, they like, you know, the aspect of, um, you know, introducing evidence, being in trial. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're, when you go into like, you know, real life practice, most of it is going to be sitting down with people dealing with other, your colleagues on the other side, your U S attorneys, the relationships that you're making, a lot of it is going to be trust. You just knowing your stuff that someone um, can understand and appreciate what you're doing. But um, there's so much baggage, like you're talking about, um, with you know the mental aspect of it. Do what you love to do. Um, the best piece of career advice that I ever got was, you know, take the money out of the equation. And what would you just do for fun as a lawyer? Um, and if your answer is I wouldn't do anything, then you know, maybe you should think about what drives your passion. But if your answer is I would do this, or like, this is something interesting to me, pursue it. The money will follow. The happiness will follow. Mm-hmm. I think we're seeing that in the pandemic. People's priorities have really shifted. They've, you know, come to understand that you know, things, there's a lot of other things that are important, you know, just spending time with family, not having to commute, right. um, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, take the time to learn a little bit about, you know, where it is that you're going to go in your career or what type of job that you're going to do. Um, you know, I think we're at the defender's office. We're always, you know, we're always really happy to talk to anybody because nobody really ever wants to talk to us. Ever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everyone, um, you know, I know when I was in law school, the, you know, the, the really fun thing was to become a prosecutor. That's what everybody, right. everybody wanted to be in AUSA. Um, and, you know, I was introduced to kind of the federal defender world. I've always loved the underdog. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, everyone like Michael Jordan, I was kind of like was rooting for Charles Barkley all those years and like Patrick Ewing. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to say I was rooting for Craig Elo or something. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, I always like Michael Chang too, when he like went up against like Pete Sampras or something. Uh-huh. You want to, you want the, uh, you want the little guy to sometimes, um uh, you know, get a shot, uh, yeah. at, at winning. So, um, yeah. but when you get into it, it's, you know, the day-to-day aspect of the job and the stuff that you're working on, um, you know, it's an autonomous, you know, you're kind of free, um, you know, this uphill battle, it's, it's fun in some respect because you get to sit down and think, well, you know, how can I try to move the law in a certain direction that might help this guy and broadly help, you know, society in general, because, you know, you know, we've seen this now time and time and time again, where, you know, there's laws that are passed. I know we know this in like the Muslim community, especially there's lots of surveillance laws, post 9-11, fourth amendment issues where, you know, in the name of national security, things happen, sort of gets a pass, you know, there's pushback, but nobody ever really objects when it's applied to criminals. Except right. we realize, well, once you apply it in one aspect, if there's not a check on it, if it's not done in the right way, then the next thing you know, well, your social media is being scanned and your cell phone is being tapped and mm-hmm. you're being monitored 24 hours a day. And when you look at 
the stuff, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court or the appellate courts across the country, they're the ones dealing with these issues a lot more than Congress is. Um, It's why politicians are really hyper-focused on the judiciary. It's not just because it's easier to get judges confirmed. I think there's an understanding that the way our judiciary looks and the way that our lawyers push the law is what we're going to end up with as citizens. So, you know, it all works together. I think, you know, we're one piece of the puzzle, but kind of a fun piece. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a good point. But I, I do think, you know, I think you give elected officials a pass there. I do think uh, they recognize that they're not able to get things passed. So it's just easier to have the courts decide things and they complain about it later. Um, but, uh, you know, go back to, I guess, you know, the point you were talking about earlier that the public defender's office isn't like how you see it on TV and law and order, right? But um curious about what's your volume of cases like so it's um it, give it to give it like a relative nature um you know at any given time if you're in the trial division you know you'll be working on 25 to 30 about like active cases um which is which is to say you know, you're, you're not going to 25 or 30 trials at a time, Mm. but you know, you're dealing with that many individuals. Um, and you know, you're putting in a substantial amount of hours. Um, someone had asked me a a recent question, like, well, what are your hours different between a law firm and working at a federal defender's office? And, you know, my answer was not that different, but the real difference is I purposefully work this many hours now because I can't put a brief down versus I have to meet a billable hours. On the appeal side, I always look at things on um, you know due dates, like how many briefs do I have to do a month, how many times do I have to write anything. Um, and I think a good you know kind of baseline is um, you know you're you got about fifteen to twenty active appeals that are going on. They're at various stages. Um, so, you know, we'll be writing things to the court of appeals. Um, you know, you get to also write, you know, petition to the Supreme court. Um, you know, this morning I was working on a reply to a brief in opposition that the solicitor general had filed for one of our cert petitions. So, you know, there's, there's various different stages um, that you're doing. Uh, I do think it's, it's a difference in management of your caseload where, um, you know, going back to that autonomy point, um, you know, and I'm in supervision in our office, but even when I wasn't, um, or even when I am now, everyone is responsible for their own case management. Right. Um, you know, there's really nobody who's standing over me that's saying, hey, are you going to get this done? Or are you going to get that done? That's entirely up to you. Right. Um, the court has deadlines. Y- you have to impose your own self um, deadlines. So there's a lot of like self-discipline to make sure you don't get things backed up. It's not like a road jam. Um, and that you can give the proper dedication to each case because, um, you know, the volume, uh, it is definitely, definitely true when you have a spell of really bad cases or really bad issues, those days drag. Um, and I happen to be in a spell right now where I have, you know, an interesting argument coming up, a couple of briefs. It's hard for me to go to sleep because I want to wake up the next morning and just keep attacking. So it's, you know, it sounds somewhat weird to say, but, you know, I do think that's, um, you know, it's a good drive because if you don't have that, I I do think it it tends, you know, in any profession, it it weighs on you. You know, you just don't, you don't want to look at it as just a job. It's a career, Um, you know? Yeah. 
So, you know, you kind of mentioned this a couple of times. You did spend some time at a firm, right? So you graduated from law school. You went to federal, uh, the public defender's office in North Carolina. Then you went to a firm and then you came back in uh, the defender's office in Florida. So tell me a little bit about, you know, why you left and then why you came back. Right. So this is, okay, this will be the part of the podcast where we emphasize, uh, happenstances of life where your career will take turns that you don't predict and kind of the importance of mentorship. So that's my preview. Um, when I graduated uh, law school, um, you know, I, you know, I confess, I, you know, kind of by the time I was in law school, you know, I was thinking a lot of the traditional route you want to, it was in the DC area. You want to kind of go to the big firm. Um, you know, I had a summer associateship at, uh, firm in DC, Mayor Brown, um, a great place. Uh, it happened to also coincide with, um, the great recession when we were graduating. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, you can't make things like this up where, you know, somewhat over a summer softball game with one of the partners, um, was just mentioning, Hey, you know, it's not like your offers are going to go away, but, um, uh, you know, if you come here, there's, not that much business going on right now. I'm not sure exactly what you're going to be doing. Um, you know, a lot of first year associates spend a lot of time doing discovery depositions, um, you know, work of that nature. Uh, you know, he was talking to a colleague that happened to be the, um, you know, federal defender down in the Western district of North Carolina that said, you know, we would love to have somebody who wants to come here and work on appeals for a year, um, mm -hmm. while business kind of works out, uh, you know, it'd be great training for you guys as a firm. It'd be really good for someone else. And you're thinking when you're practice group leader and, you know, the guy you're playing softball with is telling you this, you should do it. And I was like, oh yeah, it sounds like a great idea. I had absolutely no clue what a federal defender's office is. It's, <laughs> it's, you know, 2008 or 2009. So like Google is not as, you know, ubiquitous where you can just figure it out. <laughs> um, so, um, but, you know, I agreed to do it uh, and, you know, it was the best career decision that I could have ever made because, um, you know, I went down there, really had no idea what to really expect, except, you know, I'd probably be working on criminal cases and appeals um, and, you know, worked with a, a great mentor um, down there in addition to everyone else. Uh, shout out if he's listening, although I, I'll send it to him. So he listened, uh, Matt Siegel, he'll deny knowing me, but, uh, he's the, um, and he's gone on to, to bigger and better things, but, um, just a great person who to, you know, sit you down and kind of like walk you through, at least from my perspective, just what it takes to be, um, you know, write an appeal, what a, mm -hmm. the court of appeals looks like, um, you know, sit there, edit your work, um, you know, explain to you how he's thinking, how he's approaching issues, how he's looking at everything. Totally invaluable because a lot of the things that he had taught or, you know, showed me at that point have really carried on. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is just a piece of advice to everyone out there. If you think you're going to, there are a lot of really talented people, and I'm sure people that are listening that are very good when they start doing something. I was not very good. I, you know, looking back, I can't, you know, it's like anything else. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe um, <laughs> I would never file anything that I um, looked at back then, but it's so, so valuable to have somebody nice tell you 
like, this is how you improve it, or this is when it increases clarity, or this is what it should look like. Um, and also help you find your voice and your style, not helping, you know, or forcing you to do anything as well. So that was a one-year commitment. And I went back to the, um, you know, firm afterwards, but I, I really did um, have a bug and a, and a heart for that practice because I really found the issues really fascinating. Um, I loved going to argument. It was like my dream at that point where, mm-hmm. you know, it was, that was in the fourth circuit court of appeals. It was like the coolest thing ever walking in there, seeing the judges, seeing people get up and argue, um, you know, again, back to the sports world, like, like, this is what it must feel like to be a quarterback. Uh, you know, this is not Tom Brady, like, let's make it Eli Manning. Um, you know, it's like, this is the Daniel Jones experience right here. Like you get to get up and, um, you know, it's just you. And I, and I really thought to myself, well, I, I really want to go back to doing that. Um, you know, I think in a, in a firm where you learn a lot of valuable tools, um, and, you know, different aspects of, you know, just, you know, totally different professional nature, working with really, really talented people. Um, but, and it's a career that, at least from my perspective, for me, didn't let me define what I wanted to do is more of, you know, what are the, you know, what's the law firm business, mm-hmm. what are the types of cases, um, you know, and so now I'm down here in Tampa, Florida, and I was, um, you know, in DC at the time, where, um, you know, I just, you know, was looking around to see, um, you know, hey, are defender jobs opening up, you know, always be on the lookout. Um, you know, I saw an opportunity here to come, you know, work on the appeals division in Tampa. Mm-hmm. Um, this is true. Um, you know, I thought about it and said, well, the Yankees have spring training here. <laughs> so, you know, can't be, can't be all that bad, right? Uh, I've never been to Tampa. I'm like, there's a beach that should be fun um, as well. And, uh, you know, on a whim, uh, now shout out to my wife, um, who was willing to move and leave her comfort zone, um, for, you know, uh, me to kind of pursue my career and, you know, shift focus of her career as well. And I don't think we would have been able to do it otherwise, but, um, you know, uh, I don't think we ever had a plan of how long we're going to be there. It's been about a decade now. Yeah. There's some, there's some kids later they're in school. <laughs> so the so clock is still stuck. Yeah. The clock is still running. Um, yeah. my, my, my family tells me that I've lost my New York accent. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we shall see, but, um, you know, it's, you know, short answer to what made me, uh, leave and come back. It, it really is the nature of the work. Um, you know, yeah. it's, uh, and it's the job that, um, you know, kind of gets me up in the morning. So, I mean, I think there are two really great uh, kind of themes in that, that little story there about your your career since law school. Um, the first is just how opportunities just sometimes happen, or right? you have to trust the process, you have to trust the path, and you went out on a whim and you found your passion, and then you came back to it, or you always kept that on your mind, and you, while you were at the firm, you were still looking for opportunities to get back there because you knew that's where your heart was. That's where your mind really was. So I love how, you know, like you said earlier to follow your passion and things just kind of work out. But the other thing that I want to note is just, you know, I've done a couple of these conversations and everybody has the same story about that mentor that shaped their career. Is that one person that decided to take them under their wing and give them advice, tell them how to do this better. And, 
you know, a lot of that goes, it, it's a two-way street, right? It's the mentee having the self-awareness to be receptive to learning and taking that information and knowing what to do with it, but also just the mentor willing to take that time or spotting potential and talent in somebody and doing what they can to help them, you know, kind of prosper in their career and find their sea legs. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I, you know, I, I'm sure every conversation, somebody will say like, I'm the product of a, a series of mentors and, you know, you look back on your career and it's, you know, I'm, I think it's still nascent and, and moving forward. It's a continuous series of, it really is. How did I get here? You look like, think back, <laughs> not to be like cliche about it, but you know, you look back at like in a movie, like people that you meet in different points of life, you know, when you're at a firm, I think most firms, they probably still do this. They assign you a mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but organically you find people that just tell you, um, you know, what you're, you know, how to do things, how to approach, you learn those aspects, but like what you're saying that organic, um, or you really connect where someone, you know, finds what you're good at. Right. Um, so, and you may not even recognize it yourself. Like you would think you're, you know, good at certain things or not good at certain um, other things. But I, you know, one thing you really hit on too, where they take you under your wing and a mentor really shows you another something that's so valuable to me in the mentorship over the career and where you try to pay it forward now is you're going to meet, and I'm sure people that are listening, you're going to meet so many people that'll tell you you can't do what you're doing. I mean, my 1L appellate writing <laughs> adjunct, I remember her saying, oh, well, you know, you know, appellate, you know, those are usually like, you know, just Supreme Court clerks. And like, right. there's like 50 people in the country that are like doing like, you know, Supreme Court practice. So you'll never do that. Right. Um, you know, you know, several Supreme Court cases later now, I, you know, I wish I had her number to right. like ask her, <laughs> like, are you still sure about that? But it's, but it's. I say that only in a half joking way, like you're going to get, you're going to hear that from people. You're going to hear that from like people all across where they're going to define for you what is being successful or what's being good, or like, I can't do this, or only these people are doing this versus how do I get good at what I'm doing? And that's something that you, that gets lost in the, you know, networking aspect of the world of like, just really trying to hone in on your skills, like being able to say, you know, these are the things that I'm good at, um, you know, that I I practice at, I want to try to get better at this, like goes a long way because you will, like everyone gets better as they're over the course of time, everyone gets more efficient, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, you know, you'll, you know, I'm sure, and stop me if someone has said this before, but you need someone else to see something in you that you haven't seen in yourself. That's, I mean, that's like, yeah, that, you know, um, you need that. You some some people, you just need that push from some, you know, an external body to help you kind of believe in yourself and find the things that you don't recognize in yourself. Um, Yeah. Okay. And and I'll say, get out of your comfort zone too. Yeah. Um, you know, don't be afraid to fail at things. Um, you know, I've talked to a lot of people that are in different stages that are very successful. They'll always tell you like funny anecdotal stories of like right. things that they were really bad at. <laughs> and, <laughs> and sometimes you just have to figure out what you're not good at to figure out 
what you are good at. Right. Um, or what, what you like and what you don't like, right? You, you can't, like, I always tell people, you know, don't let other people put you in a box and don't put yourself in a box, right? Just do it. <laughs> and don't let somebody say you can't do it. Just say, okay, I want to try and you fail, get up and then try the next thing, right? And, and that's the way people should really think about their careers and the opportunities kind of like, you know, going back to your story, yeah. just you've never, you didn't know anything about uh, the federal defender's office. And you said, sure, why not? Somebody says this could be interesting. Let me, it's not like I have work at the firm. So <laughs> got nothing. yeah. And, and, you know, and we haven't gone so far back, you know, I'm, you know, I've interned at the national mining association, shout out to them. They were really <laughs> great too. Um, you know, do I want to go work for MSHA? I mean, not that they didn't, suggest that but <laughs> you know when you're getting even more niche than osha it's like ah, that's not but don't also do things just because that's where you think your career should go right. try to pursue the things that you will succeed and be happy with doing so yeah exactly trying the things you like and don't like right so i want to i want to shift focus of the conversation to kind of stuff that you do outside of work and um, particularly um, you know, this year you're serving as the president of the American Muslim Bar Association, um, which is a new national Muslim Bar Association thing formed in the last two to three years. Yes. Uh, yeah. So tell us a little, little bit about the organization and what your vision is for them this year, during your uh, presidency. Yeah. So I'm really, um, and, and thank you so much for uh, you know, allowing us to speak about um, American Muslim Bar Association, AMBA, ambalegal.org, and for everyone listening. <laughs> um, it's, uh, and so the, the organization is really uh, born out of really inspiring, um, or I think uh, just super talented attorneys that are really looking um, from the grassroots level up to put their energy, their innovation, their talents to not only mentorship, legal resources, helping the community, but really advocacy and speaking to see a different type of world and a different type of uh, legal profession for like the Muslim community and the values that the, um, the Muslim community uh, really adheres to. And the core values of AMBA in particular, love, justice, mercy, compassion. Um, these are values of the Hillel Bayt um, that are the center core of you know, the founding principles of AMBA and, you know, the, the organization and that would really attracted me to, um, you know, become a part and, you know, take on kind of a leadership role um, with my, with my colleagues is really this dedication to a lot of times, you know, over the course, even what we're talking about, there's a lot of, you know, how do we help each other? How do we network? How do we go forward? Which is always great, but, you know, there's, a giving back aspect. We know this as Muslims, you know, the most the valuable thing that we can do is to help one another, help, you know, our fellow citizens. You know, we want to have these different aspects. That's really the guiding principles of a lot of the organization. Um, and, you know, starting kind of from the ground up and, you know, putting forward a vision where a bar association here is not only helping other attorneys, but also helping the community as well. So a lot of the things that you know, um, the organization has been focused on um, is doing, um, you know, uh, simultaneous in their different, uh, in the different committees, um, helping in mentorship, helping, you know, connect with organizations, organizations like Mobani, organizations, um, uh, you know, all across, you know, 
ideological spectrums, religious spectrums, everyone who's aligned with with values um, that we share to um, help citizens understand their rights, help other lawyers and their advocacy for other marginalized communities, um, you know, pushing people into these different policy positions, you know, helping, um, you know, younger students, uh, law students, people aspiring to go to law school to think exactly what we were just talking about more themselves and where, where can they go in their career where it's not just about, you know, serving the next paycheck, or it's not just about paying your loans back, which are all important. But, you know, one of the things I, you know, have really seen, um, and I'm inspired by the, you know, the folks in the organization is just how much energy there is in the youth. Um, and I consider, I used to consider myself young until <laughs> um, you meet people who are even younger and who are even just, you realize, oh, wow, they've grown up in a world that's changed so much faster than the world that we've changed in. And the question they asked isn't, you know, what job can I get or what can I do, but, uh, you know, or, you know, what can I do that'll advance my career? But it's, you know, how can we stop the oppression of, you know, persons of color? How can we change the criminal justice system? How come our legal system or our politicians are not focused on, um, you know, the oppressions of minorities all over the world? Like, why are these things not happening? Is it because not enough people are speaking out or is it because we don't have enough organization to push those things forward? Why are we in the Muslim community not necessarily as supportive of one another? Not to say that that is the case, but how can we improve upon that? Um, So all of these different areas, um, you know, I I would definitely say, um, you know, and I think all of our organizations are, are like this as well. It's a place where if you have energy, if you have talent, come bring your, bring that energy, bring that talent, see where you can add value in terms of advocacy, see where you can add value in terms of helping and mentorship, um, connecting people in the community with their, to, uh, you know, legal resources and, um, you know, finding other attorneys, just helping people understand their rights. You know, this whole conversation we're having about the legal system, you know, one thing I found in, you know, my, my time serving right now, just how many people are, you know, hit with, you know, calls from the FBI or they're, um, you know, have a family member that's facing an indictment and they're just lost. They don't know, you know, they're not as fluent as, you know, we as lawyers may be about like the legal system. So, you know, educating our, you know, I kind of think about it like my own parents, you know, what, you know, they wouldn't know any, anything if it wasn't for, you know, speaking and talking, um, you know, they were so focused, you know, a lot of us being, you know, first generation, second generation, which is trying to make it in the country. Now it's, you know, our responsibility to like move that citizenship. Yeah, no, I'm, I, you know, I've been really impressed with the work that AMP has been doing, especially on the, like you said, big on the advocacy front. You know, one of the things that I know you guys are working on is creating like a, I think like a national network of pro bono counsel with law firms to help, like you said, helping, you know, um, helping the communities, the Muslim communities throughout the country get access to um, big law firms to help them with their cases on a pro bono basis, which I think is, you know, fantastic work. Um, so, and, and like, you know, what you said about these organizations are all volunteer driven. So all you gotta do is have ideas and passion and just, just show up and somebody will be like, great, run with it, do it. No, and absolutely. And, you know, AMBA, um, you know, one of the mission visions 
for AMBA is to be really this third space, um, especially for Muslim attorneys that we welcome um, anyone of any faith or any background um, to join. But kind of this idea of where, you know, when we are in school, we had kind of our MSAs or MLSAs and, you know, you get to, um, you know, your local mosque or, you know, community center. But when we get to our legal profession, there's almost a different identity that gets put on. Um, and something that, you know, I feel quite strongly about, you know, especially in recent years, you know, post the murder of George Floyd in particular, there's been a real push of like diversity and inclusion, um, which is great, broadly speaking. But, you know, that conversation, I think, you know, from my perspective, should be led also from all the different aspects of diversity and uh, inclusion. And in the Muslim community, our voices shouldn't be silenced as well, or self-censorship, you know, a lot of times, and I think I'd be guilty of this myself, you know, when you're starting your legal career, you're a little bit apprehensive of, you know, how much you want to let your Muslim identity, you obviously want people identify in different ways, people practice in different ways. And however that may be, you should be comfortable in doing so. But, you know, law firms do pro bono work, law firms do advocacy work, um, law firms take stands. They didn't do that years ago. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think they were as bold, but, you know, everyone was making statements post George Floyd. Um, you know, everyone's making statements now in support or in solidarity. Um, there's a lot of issues that affect the Muslim community um, that I think, you know, that have somewhat been taboo third rail issues. Um, you know, we want to be in a society where years from now, people should be free to speak truth to power, be able to call out oppression everywhere, um, you know, for all different peoples, all different communities, and even in our own corporate or, you know, advocacy institutions or legal institutions and expect more from them. So, um, you know, to the extent we can aspire, inspire, and, you know, support that, um, you know, I think that's where the organization ultimately wants to go. That's great. So, you know, you know, we've had a really great conversation here. So I thank you for taking the time. Yeah. I always like to wrap these up with just one question. Um, what, you know, what advice do you have for anybody who wants to have a career similar to yours? First things first, uh, definitely seek out someone who's in that profession. Um, feel free to reach out to myself. You can find me on AMBA. Think I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I am on LinkedIn. I'm just joking. Um, but no, find someone in your community as well. Um, you know, whether it's your law school that you know is in that profession, and you know, understand too that people have lives and that are busy and whatnot. But I think for the most part, people are willing to talk and are more than happy to tell you about your your job. Um, you know, and kind of their path. You know, the other piece of advice is a little counterintuitive, but I think is important is your path is not going to be the same as everyone else's. Um, and you really shouldn't expect it to be. So, you know, if you're listening to this and think, okay, I got to go to North Carolina now and learn about all sorts of like nitty gritty facts about the Yankees. Like you should do both of those things, but not because you want to become a federal defender um, because they're just fun. What you want to do is really, and I, I really do stress this, try to be as good at the skill set of the job that you're aspiring to be. So if you want to be a contracts um, transactional attorney, like really spend time becoming as good as you can at those skills, because if you're good 
at something. We probably both know this in our profession, even if your personality lacks in some capacity, more people are way more forgiving because we've all had that conversation. We're like, man, that guy, you know, he's pretty good at what he does. So we'll leave him alone. Um, versus and I, and I'm saying that cause it's absolutely true. Um, but you know, it's the home run is like, man, that they're so like, they're really cool and they're good at what they do. Um, and you, there's just no substitute for just trying to be as good as what you can, you know, you can do and don't, and run your own race. Like you don't, not everyone needs to be, um, you know, the solicitor general of the United States and, you know, not everybody needs to be the chief justice of the Supreme court to make a difference. And that's another great piece of advice that I got, which is just, you know, do the best that you can do and know that you're making a difference. You know, don't have that, um, you know, social media, everyone else out there is doing something. So I need to do more to make anything better. It's, you know, like in our religion, you know, don't discount one good deed. It's the same thing in your profession. Don't discount one good day at your work and doing a good job. That's great. Yeah. Adil, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, Great talking to you. Oh, thank you so much. Subscribe to the podcast. This podcast was brought to you by the Muslim Bar Association of New York. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To learn more about Mubani, visit our website at mubani.org or check us out on Instagram.